Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. A lot of people are skeptical of any big messaging from what you might call mainstream narrative or something that comes from the politicians down or something that comes from media, particularly when they see those forces working in concert. There's a really good reason to be skeptical. We have the evidence of being hoodwinked in the past. Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration, I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy, and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. Rob Herring, I'm so pumped to have you here. Thanks for, thanks for saying yes. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Yeah. Oh, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a while. You know, I feel really blessed in the last two and a half years, three years to have been brought, you know, to people who are willing to speak out, who are willing to tell the truth, who are willing to stand in their integrity. Because, you know, that was something that I felt really challenged by was speaking out at the cost of belonging and and even just like dancing in that space of discourse. So, I found you in that adventure and I also then found your film and the need to grow, which really for me spoke to this need to connect back to nature, this need to actually be educated about what's actually going on on the planet. Cause it feels like the dehumanization and sort of technological path we're going at is also the disconnection from the planet. So I'm curious what brought you into creating that film? Where did it start? And and I guess, you know, at the end, maybe by the end of this, we'll know. How did we get here? Um, so, yeah, please share. Yeah, The Need to Grow was a passion project for sure. For those who haven't seen it, it focuses a lot on the degenerative agricultural systems that have eroded our soil on a physical level, but also taken away a lot of the nutrients and the ability for soil to do what it's supposed to do in a normal, natural ecosystem. So for me, 
it was quite a journey to get to that spot that initially started with my own health issues. I think a lot of people can relate to coming up against a wall in conventional approaches to heal themselves. And if they are struggling to find a solution, eventually they, they start to turn to what's called alternative modalities. And I've become a, a big believer in integrative medicine, mostly because the concept of integrative medicine is really about bringing both mainstream Western medicine together with all of these more ancient or quote unquote alternative modalities, really looking at what does this patient need at that time? And it may be herbalism, it may be chiropractic care, maybe meditation, maybe a pharmaceutical if they've tried the other more benign approaches first and haven't found relief. So it's not about demonizing anything over the other, but what I found in my personal healing journey was, you know, there's more to the story than a lot of us have been led to believe when it, be, when it comes to our options. And so for me, I, I, I started studying nutrition. And inevitably, when you look at nutrition, you start to learn about the degeneration of our food system. Why aren't we getting these nutrients? Why do we need to supplement at this point? And so I, I found these two paths coinciding, which was the human health story and the planetary health story. And for me, it was looking at a lot of the pesticides and the poisons that we're unknowingly exposing our bodies to, and unfortunately exposing our ecosystems at large to unprecedented levels. And yet we're seeing these rises in chronic conditions. So chronic disease is happening in humans, but chronic disease, if you can call it that, is happening to our ecosystems. You know, we're watching biodiversity loss on a planetary level. We're also watching biodiversity loss on a human health level within our gut microbiome. And so these reflections of human and planetary health were just so profound to me that they were all coming back to how much are we poisoning our own bodies and nature and the food system is really what it comes down to. You know, that's the baseline for most people and to how we interact with the natural world. Because even though we may buy our food from the grocery store and not think about it, that is an interaction with nature. You know, someone somewhere was either doing things in a way that regenerates an ecosystem or degenerates an ecosystem. And so the need to grow was looking at this place that so many food activists and environmental activists had arrived at, which was a frustration and anger, a pointing the finger. And I had marched in a lot of those marches against so-and-so, against this company, against that. And me and my friend Ryan Wyrick were thinking, you know, how do we inspire people to march for something? What are we pointing ourselves to if we're looking away from that problem? And we asked ourselves, you know, why are we often at the time I was in my early 20s and I would be at these meetings and I was always the youngest person there. I thought this is this is a problem in and of itself that young people aren't educated or engaged on these topics. So we said, how can we make this issue maybe a bit more accessible to the average person? Can we focus on solutions? Or is it that a documentary only works if it's more about fear and pointing the finger? And so that was our challenge. And there's a bit of, you know, we have to point the stakes out. We have to talk about the urgency of this issue because our soil degeneration is quite alarming. But we ultimately asked ourselves, can we look at solutions? 
And so the need to grow was born out of that, that question. Can we find solutions? And we went around the country and we did find many stories of solutions. And that was probably our biggest takeaway was how many people, every city we went to, were trying to do the right thing. We're organizing. We would arrive somewhere and interview somebody and they'd say, have you heard about so-and-so? Have you heard about that organization? It's like, there's more than we could possibly fit into one film. And so the film became this story of three heroes. And we wanted to create the feeling that you were watching the hero's journey. And there are three very diverse solutions, three very different heroes, but ultimately have, they have to do with regenerating our connection to nature, our connection to our food system, and our ability to actually regenerate this most precious natural resource, which is our soil. And so we love this idea of looking at nature always as our inspiration because as a permaculture principle, which is really the way that you, you know, model nature in design, or some people might call this biomimicry. Nature is always about diversity. It's always about redundancy. There's always more than one solution. And so as much as we're always drawn to simplicity and the binary of this solution versus that, the fact is there's no one size fits all. And that's what we wanted to make this movie about, which was you. there's an entry point for you no matter where you are at any age. And no matter if you've been an environmentalist, if you've been an activist, if you've been engaged in your own health, there's always the next step for you. And so people always ask, you know, what's the what is the thing that I should do? And it's whatever is the thing that you're going to do, you know, whatever, whatever you're going to be involved in, whether it's composting your food or just buying more at the farmer's market or just buying organic. And so we, we wanted to present a lot of solutions because that's that's the beautiful thing is natural systems are diverse and your opportunity to get involved in solutions is also diverse. Why do you think that in our journey to, you know, you said that a lot of us are sort of brought to integrative medicine or alternative medicine from a place of not being able to find solutions for our own health and maybe a loved one or something like that. Why do you think it is that there's been a decoupling of human health and planetary health? Like that we have this idea and maybe it's the arrogance of humanity that we think we're like separate from this thing and we can, because I don't think most of us even know the price of things like glyphosate, you know, and how that impacts us. So maybe you could even speak to that. And then, yeah, why do you think there's been a decoupling? Is it due to marketing? Is it due, like, what is it? There's always financial incentive at the bottom line of a lot of uh, these cultural misnomers, or I think in in regards to giving up our power and kind of outsourcing our intuition and decision-making. And so anytime that there was a large incentive for someone to sell something that may have a negative effect, it would always behoove them to make sure that people weren't paying attention to that. And so on a larger scale, when it comes to something like a pesticide, like glyphosate, I think these industries are very well practiced in you know, sweeping things under the rug, for lack of a better term, in terms of data and the potential harm. And so we have this lack of what's known as precautionary principle, which is you know, if you don't know the impact 
that it's going to have, we probably shouldn't be rushing into something on a massive scale. Because if there's even a small chance that it has irreparable damage, then we have gone in blind to, you know, in, in the case of glyphosate, we used it so, so, so much. And it is effective for what it does, which is to basically end life. It kills everything. Just and kills so, everything. <laughs> so the, the, the idea of genetically modifying our food was a great idea to sell this toxic poison because if you genetically engineer the food to withstand that poison, as we've seen with some of these GMO, these genetically modified organisms, you can spray the heck out of your whole field with this toxic chemical known as glyphosate or using the product Roundup, originally sold by Monsanto. Now Bayer has purchased that company. You know, you can withstand that the endless amounts of that poison, seemingly. So, from a business standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. Kill all the weeds, kill everything that you're not going to make money off of, but your crop still stands strong. Unfortunately, there's the downstream effect, both literally and figuratively. And so, we've eroded the life in the soil. And this is a big part of, of what the need to grow is about was, you know, the biology, the microbiology. And so I think, you know, to answer your question is if there's a potential negative effect of a product, you don't really want people to know about that. And so these marketing strategies, some people call it propaganda, but it's also just the actual act of lobbying. You can educate or miseducate uh, your influencers, which are often politicians, but it's also farmers, it's also consumers, to kind of look the other way. And you can convince them that this is for the greater good, that we have to use these products, right? So a lot of farmers that are really well-meaning were lured into using poisonous chemicals. And a lot of farmers now that probably don't want to use these chemicals are actually trapped in a loop where they can't actually change their farming methods unless they were to have outside support. And so it's really hard to change from a conventional farm into organic. And a, a lot of great organizations are now trying to find funding to help them transition because initially it is it does take a bit of extra funding over usually about, you know, 2 to 3 years in in many cases they do make a bigger ROI by switching to organic. Uh, they have fewer inputs, they have fewer water inputs, they don't have to use those toxic chemicals, and they start to see the ecosystem take care of, taking care of itself. And that's what nature was designed to do. And so anytime that we interrupt natural systems, there is an inevitable kicking the can down the road. We think we're getting a solution here, but it will probably come back to bite us in the butt. And so when we look at soil, you know, we, we extract, we extract, we extract. We have to think about farming as extraction from the, the minerals and the nutrients in our soils. And that's, that's important. We need to be eating food, but we forgot to be, to replenish those soil systems is a way to think about it. So we're growing these silhouettes of crops of what they once were, where they don't contain the magnesium. They don't contain the, the vitamins and minerals that they once did. And so we're eating them, but we're not getting that nutrition that 
you know, even just a couple of generations ago, we would have had. So why is that? Well, the nutrients just aren't there in the soil. That biology and that ecosystem, which is so complex, even the top soil scientists will admit we know maybe 1% of what's going on. It's tens of thousands of different species in just, you know, billions of microbes in just a teaspoon of soil. And so it, it is, it's kind of hard for our brain to, to grasp, which makes sense as to why we would overlook it. It's the invisible. It's, uh, but, but we really do know more about the cosmos at this point than we do about our own soil. And so we want to inspire people to, you know, not just look up at the night sky and think, hey, I want to be an astronaut, but actually look down and go, you know, the opposite direction into the, the minuscule and think, wait a minute, there's there's a galaxy happening in this handful of soil. And really all of life on planet Earth is dependent on this. And so we need more people to be excited and inspired by that because without soil being protected, you eventually run out of the nutrients for the food, but also we're losing the ability to hold water. And so much of our ecosystem is dependent on the hydration cycle. And when soil is healthy, when it has those microbes, when it has that biodiversity, soils are actually going to hold water. They act like a sponge. So when we deplete that life in the soil, we're actually increasing both drought and flood potential because the water isn't being absorbed into it. And so therefore, you, you, you drive through California, where I lived for a long time, and you see just the massive drought. And that's because these soils are bare. They're being just exhausted by overextraction, and they're not being covered in the way that nature would do it. Nature wouldn't just leave bare soil. There's always plants. There's always biodiversity. And so that actually protects and holds the water down there. So we see that if we increase the soil life by as little as one percentage point, you know, it's organic matter on an acre, you could hold about 25,000 more gallons of water. So we can wow. dramatically restore the water cycle by focusing on soil. Almost everything comes back to soil. Not quite everything, but almost everything, including the way that we pollute our oceans, right? So much of that is runoff that's coming from agricultural systems. Now, those chemicals shouldn't even be there in the first place, but if the soils were a bit healthier, they wouldn't be washing away into the rivers. So we're polluting our rivers, we're polluting our oceans, we're killing and creating these dead zones in, in the Gulf of, of Mexico. It's just enormous dead zone. Nothing else can grow because we've disrupted those cycles. So we wanna protect farmers from exposing themselves to these carcinogenic chemicals that now there's, you know, there's a little bit of resistance of people that are still in denial about the, the cancer causing you know, power of these chemicals. But the fact is the evidence has, has mounted so much over these last 20 years that now we can we can pretty much, you know, all agree that this is incredibly harmful. Even our own EPA knows that these chemicals are harmful and their job in the United States is to protect, uh, protect our environment from these chemicals. Their own studies show that they're massive risk to biodiversity and yet they're still approved. So what else is going on here? What's happening behind closed doors or what level of you know, political influence is happening when the organization's own studies show things are incredibly toxic and yet they leave these things as being legal and allowed and not just allowed, but used you know, at unprecedented levels. We're not being protected, unfortunately, by 
organizations like our Food and, and Drug Administration. So the FDA is not looking out for our food system in the way that we might want. You know, the average consumer is realizing this. The burden is actually on us as the consumers to educate ourselves. And we have systems in place that are unfortunately subsidizing all of the most degenerative forms of agriculture. So the money is going to these processes that create the most junk food commodities like corn and soy that really end up in soda. And they're not going to fund these regenerative systems. So why is that? You know, what industries have been lobbying for decades just to sort of manipulate what we consider to be true. And we see we saw the same thing in our nutrition guidance. Many people now know that the food pyramid is quite a joke. It was really a marketing angle. When you look back at the, the old food the pyramid, we had just like that bottom the diabetes layer. diabetes pyramid, the heart bread. disease pyramid. <laughs> yeah, just, oh yeah, just eat like eight servings of bread. And that's, you know, the, the foundation of your health. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly shocking. And so some of these things are staring us right in the face and they still exist to this day. You know, the new version of the food guide is still manipulated by industry. And so we have all of these, you know, historical records of the way that industry has influenced our perception of what is the right thing to do? What is the solution? And even with all that evidence, it's still hard for, for us to break out of the cycle being dependent on that system, I think it's it's an important time because the the power is on the individual to a degree. It's not that it's a burden or responsibility to fix everything, but the point is you can take those steps to protect your own health and to protect your small ecosystem, you know, in your local community. And so you you may hear activists talk about local food systems and try to buy local, and it, it seems a bit cliche, but the fact is. That is one of the most powerful things you can do. You vote with your dollar. If you go to the supermarket and buy the big brand version of whatever it is, the loaf of bread, the cookie, it could be you know any processed food that you found in the grocery store, or it could be a candle, it could be you know deodorant, whatever you found that you needed to buy as your basic necessities, can you find someone local who does that? Because those little companies, you're you're actually stepping into natural system solution, which is about creating decentralization, right? Diversity of those companies. Anytime that we find that something is becoming more and more monopolized or more and more centralized, that is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for increased chance of collapse, but it's also a recipe for increased chance of corruption and manipulation because there's more and more power. So anytime you can resist those centralized companies, you're doing a greater service for your own future. And I think the ecosystems at large, because that's gonna be the power is decentralizing as much as humanly possible. It certainly seems like something that's been brought more into our awareness recently that you know the answer to our problems, as you're saying, is not globalism, it's localism. It's like, get hyper-local, you know, put money in the pockets of the farmers who live down the street from you. I think about before I really started to look at soil health, you know, due to your documentary and then interviewing Zach Bush, listening to people. I was introduced to Vandana Shiva by your documentary. And I never thought about the surface of the soil. What do they call it? 
Pumis? Pumis? Is that the right? Humus. There's the humus. humus that's right. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe the amount of diversity within that soil. And then just in learning how this, the ecosystem, as you said, nature does take care of itself. And when we impede and destroy everything just to extract, because I think like, isn't this the classic thing of humanity is like, try to get as much fucking stuff as we can out of one fucking thing. And we're not thinking about restoration. We're just thinking about extraction. And I, it seems like when I think of myself pre having this awareness, there was almost like out of sight, out of mind. Like, I don't have to think about it. There's regulatory bodies in charge of, like, I wasn't even thinking about this, but I, I'm on an unconscious level, you know, I'm like, I don't have to think about this. There's regulatory bodies for that. They'd never do anything like that, which scratch the mic. That's definitely not true anymore. You know, like I have awareness of that. I think of the average person who doesn't have their hands in soil and doesn't really know like climate change. Oh, that's too much. I'm dealing with COVID now. I'm dealing with, you know, they're not, it's almost seems like too much dissonance. I don't know. Do we have a choice not to finally pay attention? And how does the average person navigate that dissonance and then increase their awareness and start to live solutions, start to be part of that because uh, it just seems overwhelming to consider. Yeah, I think it's become a bit of a runaway train. And it's it's not so much that there's always evil intention on this train that's heading in the wrong direction. It's just momentum. And I think with solutions on any on any scale, whether we're talking about our mental health solutions, our physical health solutions, our diet, or our engagement with the natural world that can it can actually benefit all of those things from your physical, mental, spiritual, and then your natural ecosystem. You just have to start to create that momentum in the opposite direction. And so it starts small. You know, when I was studying nutrition, we would talk about how do we engage with someone that is feeling overwhelmed by the burden of exercise or changing their diet. And so we look at the psychology of solutions. You have to actually look at creating new patterns, creating new neuropathways. And how do you do that? Well, you have to start with something that you know you're going to be successful at. And so if it's, hey, this person's not going to run 10 miles, right? If I ask, if I had a client, hey, you know, can you commit to running 10 miles next week? What, what are you talking about? I've never, I don't run at all. You know, can you commit to running one mile next week? Now, for some people, they can. Some people, not a chance. Can you commit to just walking around your block for half an hour? Yeah, I think I could probably do that. But realistically, I, I'm not going to. OK, well, let's see. You know, what is the thing that you can absolutely commit to that you're sure you're not going to fail? And maybe it's just putting on your tennis shoes. And if you say, well, putting on my tennis shoes, that's kind of stupid. I'm not going to actually get a benefit from that. But the fact is, you put on your tennis shoes, you might go, well, my shoes are on now. I guess I'll just go for a walk around the block. Right. So you're creating the opportunity to remove that resistance and, and actually have a win. As you know, I eliminated the use of caffeine and now I've reintroduced it just a little bit in me choosing how it participates in my life, which I like being in control of my relationship with any substance that stimulates me in my mind. And add to that that I really wanted to find something that allowed my brain to perform at its best possible level. I'm in conversations all the time. I'm recording videos. I'm doing podcasts. And so I need to be at the highest performance I can possibly be. So I've been exploring 
including things like nootropics and adaptogens. I absolutely love this company, Cured Nutrition. I love its origin story. It's fully aligned with my values and the integrity to which I want to live by. The product that I love is called Rise, and it's a nootropic that's formulated by their in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms, rhodiola, ginseng, and a broad-spectrum CBD. I love this product. It has allowed me to have greater mental clarity and performance. There's no caffeine in it, so in that time of that midday coffee... I don't have to take it. You get no jitters, you get no crash, and you're getting those functional mushrooms, the adaptogens, and the cannabinoids. And it leaves your brain on fire, and your to-do list just gets crushed. So this company, as I mentioned, I love, and they are extending an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can go grab Rise and any of their other products for 20% off. Just go to www.curednutrition.com slash create the love, and you use the code create the love at checkout. Once again, that's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash create the love, and use the code create the love at checkout to save 20%. Remember that product is called Rise and it is incredible. And so, you know, in education, I always lean on this concept of reading one page a day. Can you commit to reading one page a day? You want to read that book. You didn't finish it. Don't think about reading the whole book. Just do one page. If you commit to reading one page, what inevitably happens for almost anyone is now they've got the book. They thought, all right, I'll just do one page. It'll take me a minute or whatever. But now I'm here. All right, I'll just keep reading. I'll read a couple more pages, right? You set yourself up for that success. And so I think when it comes to these solutions, whether they be for our own health or our environmental health, which again, I, I think are really the same thing, almost all in all scenarios. How do I do the thing that I can do that I know I won't fail at? For some people, it's going to be starting to compost their food because when they realize, wow, taking these resources out of the farm, they show up on my, you know, I've got the food, it's here in my kitchen, I chop off the end of the carrot, and then I'm just going to throw it into a garbage can and it goes and sits in a landfill and creates all these toxic greenhouse gases. Wait a minute, that could go back in the cycle as natural systems were designed, that should go back as a resource. It is a resource and it can create new soil. So maybe I'm going to compost myself, which is a lot easier than most people think if you buy the right system. Maybe I'm just going to hand it off to a friend that does compost. Maybe I'll look in my area, type in my zip code, compost. You know, is, is there a service that could pick this up? Okay, well, you know, what is going to be the least resistance for you? So for most of us, I think that that is a doable change. Take mm-hmm. those food scraps that are what we call organic waste. Doesn't mean that it's quote unquote USDA organic, meaning it's just biological. It's food waste. You can put it in a freezer bag and, and put it in your freezer so it doesn't smell, it doesn't rot. Find somebody you know in your community and get them their soil. Get them get them those food scraps to make new soil. There's a great organization. It's not mine. It's called makesoil.org. Uh, you can type in where you are and find what they call soil makers, just people that are composting. And you can actually provide that. And then there's there's no fee. Just finding someone who will take your food scraps. There are other services that maybe charge you 10 bucks a month to pick it up and they might give you back some soil. Um, so can you start a garden? Maybe you don't feel like you have the space. 
you could start a potted plant just in in your house. Now, a lot of people are going to think that's not going to do anything. But again, it's like putting the tennis shoes on. It's a starting point. It's not that just planting one little seed in a little pot on your windowsill is going to automatically change the world. But you're, you're setting in motion, you know, a small piece of awareness of just taking care of this plant, watching a seed grow. And then you might start to have an appreciation for, you know, the local farmers or the local nursery. Maybe you get a plot at the local community garden, or maybe just at your farmer's market, you know, you start to think about differently, hey, is there an opportunity for me to engage with this farmer and say, hey, what kind of practices are you using? Are you using chemicals on this? You know, people think at farmer's markets, oh, it's all a solution, but they forget that a lot of those farmers are still using conventional means. So can you have those conversations and just inspire that farmer to maybe reconsider or say, hey, can I do a farm tour? Can I you know, volunteer for a day? That act of getting engaged with the food system is going to have a big change. We see this in children and adults alike, particularly folks that are, in, are dealing with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress. When you get on a farm, when you get in a garden, and as you said, like just getting your hands in the soil, there is really a, a physiological change. And so it's not just about, oh, you're there and you're feeling good because you're surrounded by green. But these are these are real physiological changes that happen in our body. For one thing, you are connecting to the Earth's electrical field, right? Grounding science or otherwise known as earthing was, you know, a lot of people write this off as being woo woo. But you, there's this is very real documented. Seems Pretty real. Like we're from the earth. The earth gives us energy. I mean, <laughs> connecting to the earth's electrical field. I've watched this in real time where we actually took people's blood and looked it under a microscope. They were dealing with pain and inflammation after 45 minutes of being connected to the ground, grounding themselves. What happens is they're they're flooded with free electrons, and so their their blood cells See, literally. That's change. not woo. Yeah, I mean we saw it in 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 real time. Um, so just connecting to that is powerful. Then there's you know these bacteria, Mycobacterium vaccae is one that's been studied. We have to remember that most of the things in soil, and similarly in nutrition and phytochemicals and fresh foods, we don't actually know what's happening. So a lot of people might assume, oh, the nutritionists know or the soil scientists know, the farmers know. But when it gets down to, you know, the complexity of what's happening at these microscopic and in many ways quantum scales, we don't really know. So a few of the things we've studied, um, and one of them is the, the microbacteria vacae, which actually increases your serotonin production. So you, you literally do feel good. You are healing your own gut bacteria and your own microbiome, because we have to remember that we're actually a collection of unfathomable number of microbes, other living things that are not our own human DNA, that a lot of them live in our gut, but a lot of them are right here on our skin. They're in our lungs. They're, they're, they're virtually everywhere. And we coexist with them. So you're not just you. You know, you are kind of a vessel for these microorganisms. And they evolved in a way that you were connecting to the ground. So we, we think like, did human beings evolve by sterilizing and flash pasteurizing their foods? 
Or would they have more evolved about taking the carrot out of the ground? Yeah, you brush off as much as you can. Yes, wash it off. I'm not suggesting to eat things that you don't know if they're safe. But we had an engagement with the, the bacteria that was in the soil. We would consume some of that. We would breathe it in. It would get under our fingernails as we interact with nature. You know, we would be touching these things, breathing them in. And so when we look at natural systems, farming, or our own human health is what did nature evolve with? Now, some people call it a nature fallacy as a logical fallacy that just because something's natural doesn't mean it's safe. And that's true because Snake venom is natural. You know, lightning, for God's sakes, is natural. doesn't mean you want to get hit by something natural, right? But the idea is we didn't actually evolve by consuming snake venom. We didn't evolve by being constantly struck by lightning. What are the things that our DNA actually evolved alongside? And that, that was consuming things as close to nature intended. It was connecting with the earth. It was breathing cleaner air. It was getting exposed to negative ions from running water, from waterfalls, from mountains. It was looking at things far away. It was having that security. You know, our psychology is really built on being part of the natural world. And you are nature. We are an expression of nature. It is not separate. It's not a metaphor that you're nature. We literally are you know, the, the elements just moving around, you know, we are the water, we are the air, we are the earth, the minerals, we're also the fire, and the fire is the light. We are literally beings of light, and our next film, Pharmacy of Light, Pharmacy with an F, talks about this concept of biophotonics, which is how does light or photons work within plants you know, we've all heard of photosynthesis. Plants are actually absorbing light, these packets of light called photons. When you eat fresh food, as, as close to fresh as, as possible, which again is how we would have evolved for the most part. We would have stored some things through the colder months, but when we eat food right after it's picked, it's at its optimized level of freshness. But another way of thinking about that is it's light energy. And so we take that in and light is actually in our bodies. A lot of people don't know that you can measure the actual light emitting from your body with certain tools you can see these uh, these little halos, or actually coronas, they're called, of light that's emanating. Our hands have, have some hot spots. You can measure the light that is being communicated between our cells. And so we are, you know, we're, we're moving photons uh, at quantum levels, you know, hundreds of thousands per second for all we know. And this is actually light communication that's happening between our cells. So we need to get out of this like woo-woo concept of, oh yeah, you are light and realize that it is very real. It's measurable. And when we're light deficient, we actually start to suffer from illness. And most of us are inside, unfortunately, all the time. You know, it's estimated that most people spend 90% plus indoors. I think it's probably higher than that, unfortunately, for the average person. And so is that how we evolved? You know, did we evolve not exposed to the sun or were we evolved by being outside and, and getting that light energy? And of course, we don't want to burn, but there are some misconceptions about the, the danger of the sun, which I find absolutely stunning. You know, you have the, the American Dermatology Association that's saying there's no safe sun exposure 
period, no amount. And that you need to be wearing sunscreen if you go outside for minutes or even if you're indoors, they recommend it. And so, you know, this is not medical advice, but you have to ask yourselves, you know, did every human being evolve on this planet getting skin cancer? Oh, it's so ridiculous. Right. So we, we do know, but of course, there's, there's always contradicting studies and there's ways to manipulate numbers. But we do know that actually the, the places around the world that are most exposed to sun have the lowest incidence of cancer. And so you can become less resilient to sun. And I think this is where, you know, the confusion happens is that, you know, we need to be creating our bodies as more and more resilient, just like our natural systems. You, you create the redundancies and create that resilience um, through nutrition and, you know, building back up your, your own immune system and your defense, because you're not supposed to burn. You're not supposed to lead to skin cancer. And so how do we actually enhance our resilience to these things. And, and a lot of it is is not just the external. It's a lot more internal than many of us have been led to believe through things like antioxidants and, and nutrient deficiencies. And there's tons of science that's showing how you know, certain nutrient deficiencies increase our chance of burning. And so this is very commonly overlooked, as is in most things that people are dealing with. That yeah. you know, we haven't even looked at our nutrient levels first. You know, what are you is there a deficiency that you haven't even flagged wait a minute you're just like massively deficient in this because it's not part of your diet it's it's always a good place to start you know see if you can find those and maybe your health or your mental health will change there's there's a great book called your brain on food and we're also making another movie about the gut brain axis and mental health i would recommend that book by dr uma naidu that looks at nutritional psychiatry and once again, just replenishing the, the diversity of what you're exposed to can can lead to these solutions. It just makes so much sense. You know, it's not like it's ironic that what you're saying can be considered by some people conspiracy. Like that is the idea that the earth would provide the nutrients, the sun, we might need that. How did we survive without the American Dermatology Association previously? You know, it's I think of like, how did we survive without uh, pharma, you know, we're the sickest we've ever been. We're not less disease since the introduction of massive uses of pharmaceuticals. We're more sick. And, you know, I think the challenge, Rob, is that when I think of crops, right? And just like a guy who's not educated on crops, I got an uncle who's a farmer. That's about as close as it gets. And I had this thought that, okay, well, we need monocrops because we need to feed the world. Right. Like, and I think of also, and you can let me know what the appropriate segue is here, but I think also when it comes to climate change, I would have formed, you know, I have a friend who studied the Great Barrier Reef and seeing the reductions of it due to climate change. And, you know, I think I heard recently that the parts of the reef have actually grown back and that's good. And you don't usually hear good news about the climate in the news, but because of everything that's happened with COVID, I don't really trust media on a large scale. I don't really, I don't trust media. I was trying to minimize the extremity of that, but I don't, I don't really trust anything that is now being used to propagate fear because I'm really starting to see how much fear is exploited to create the vision and marketing. 
and to sell something and to put in policies and to change, uh, to pass bills. You know, I think it was very naive, naive of me before because I really, again, just sort of, infan- I parentified government, which means I infantilized myself. I didn't vote generally, which, you know, now I look back and I'm like, damn it, I should have done that. But how do we separate? Because am I wrong in feeling some exploitation of climate change because I'm feeling like that language is really amping up yet I know the planet is suffering and so I'm like how do I differentiate these two things where I help by doing what I can getting my hands in a garden starting to grow my own stuff starting to buy meat from local farmers really immersing myself in the experience of the food I'm eating so that I'm responsible for what I'm consuming am I wrong in that and yeah maybe speak to that rant I just went on a lot of people are skeptical of, of any big messaging from what you might call mainstream narrative or something that comes from the politicians down or something that comes from media, particularly when they see those, those forces working in concert. There's a really good reason to be skeptical. You know, we have the evidence of being hoodwinked in the past. We do want to remain skeptical. I think any time that a solution is posed that is about further centralization, that's a great time to be skeptical and say, is there ulterior motive here? You know, most people are incentive based. It's not always about corruption, financial sense, or, you know, they just want they're just greedy and powerful. The fact is we all make decisions based on whatever the incentive is. And it could be protecting our, our social status, could be protecting the, the you know, relationships, it could whatever we find of value. And so when we look at these messages, it's is there the possibility that there is a plan or a solution that's going to be offered that is going to be about more centralization and more power going to somebody? Um, instead of us, and about dehumanizing us and taking away our our power and our independence. And so when I look at something that, you know, people call climate change, I know why it, there's a good reason to be skeptical of it. And we should, because it's, again, it's not one binary thing. It's not, okay, it's all CO2 and it's all about CO2 and the world's going to end if we don't do X, Y, and Z. Anytime I hear that, I think about the destruction of natural systems. So I ask people, you know, I think we agree that we all want clean air, clean food, and clean water. Everyone that wants to be alive or wants their family to be alive would agree with that. So that's our common ground. Do we realize that pollution is a real thing? Yes. Okay. So pollution happening on some scale is probably affecting the ecosystem. Does we agree? Absolutely. Deforestation. If we deleted all the trees in the world, it would probably have an effect, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So destroying some of them is also going to have an effect at some scale. So we can agree there's a spectrum of of change that's happening here. When you just go out on a farm that has bare soil and you see the change in temperature, you very quickly see that that's real. You know, when soil is not covered, it gets very, very hot. It, it actually is a negative feedback loop. It evaporates the water quicker. Therefore, it destroys some of the microbiome of the soil itself. And you can actually gauge it. And then you can go literally 
feet away, mere feet away to a neighboring field that is doing what's called cover cropping, where they're growing some biodiversity or even some grasses that protects the soil. And the temperature is dramatically different. That means that animals and livestock can actually exist on that without suffering and, and feeling the ill effects. I saw this, you know, when I lived in cities, when we would see city council approve the removal of old growth um, trees on just a neighborhood. And unfortunately, you see that the lower income areas have fewer trees, which is kind of a disaster for many reasons. But when they would remove these old growth trees from from reasons just like it was pushing up the sidewalk and somebody tripped over it, like a drunk person fell, sued the city. <laughs> this is the true I story. to put them in rehab. We'd get rid <laughs> yeah, of the tree. <laughs> true story. Guy admittedly drunk, fell, hurt himself, sued the city, got millions of dollars in the settlement. They also had to clear all of the trees. Now, what? just remo- just removing those trees, you can walk under it. I mean, it sounds like a, a, a such a simple idea of going in the shade that it would be cooler under there. But those things have real effect on the microclimate of that block. Those houses are going to use less um, electricity on air conditioning. Those people are going to experience less of the effects of heat when it gets to these powerful heat waves. So these microclimates are undeniable. You know, just removing a a pond, you actually transform that microclimate in a small area. But those microclimates then compound to, to larger things. So we all know that pollution is doing damage. We all know that the lack of biodiversity doesn't sound like a good idea. We know that, you know, species extinction is probably not going to help the optimization of the of the natural world. And so I think we just have to leave it at that. You know, we don't have to get into the arguments of what CO2 on what scale necessarily. And we can look at how do we restore these natural ecosystems. And so when I see these this like climate change messaging, it's the same old game again, which is here's a real problem to be afraid of and we've got the solution. And it just so happens that it's going to help us and our powerful friends who also fund us for re-election next year. So, you know, the, the, uh, the corruption, corruption is very real, but it doesn't have to get into it being some big conspiracy where everybody's in a back room, secret meeting. We don't even need to to get to that level. It's just incentives and lobbying and how business works. So most of the, the things that people would write off that I've spoken about that initially were considered, you know, quote unquote conspiracy theory, they're just business fact. It's just how business works. It's just the way that you would, you know, choose to make decisions to increase your bottom line. And so when we hear about the the destruction of the ecosystem, a great analogy for me is that, you know, human health is declining around the world. Just because pharma or other interests might say they have the only solution doesn't mean that the problem doesn't exist. And in the same way, if we're to be skeptical about initiatives for a greener future or climate change solutions, yeah, we should be skeptical about those solutions and ask ourselves, is there more to the story? Are there other solutions that are going to really address the problem in a more direct way? And often it's about restoring those ecosystems. 
And those things can happen. What's really amazing, another great documentary called Biggest Little Farm, a lot of people probably heard of. Oh, you see so good. Beautiful movie. And for me, I think it's the, the, the most powerful thing about it is it shows in just a few years before and afters. There's nothing quite like before and afters for proof to show what can happen when you give nature a little bit of a chance. And so permaculture or regenerative agriculture, these different movements about working with nature usually means we, we shepherd in a little bit of support and then ultimately you get out of the way. So you create the conditions for nature to, to do its thing and build its momentum. And what's amazing is it happens so fast faster than we could ever imagine. So there's way more than hope. There's way more than reasons to be hopeful because nature will regenerate. It always will. You know, it's just a matter of whether or not we're going to do it gracefully with humans thriving or if it's going to be through chaos. But the earth is going to be fine. It's like how much of uh, a struggle is it going to be for humanity? And unfortunately, how many other species are we harming in the process of our ignorance, of getting in the way, of stopping nature and natural systems. But it's a balancing act because we're not all going to go live in the woods and be totally off grid and never engage with modern society. And so that's kind of the yin and yang of it is how do we find, you know, that balance where we can participate in these modern technologies, but find ways to apply technologies for regeneration and, and consciousness and awareness. And, and I think that's, that's how we're going to get there is through the, through diversity of, of ideas, through di diversity of solutions, through diversity of thought and actually embracing that and saying, wow, even if I disagree with you, you've helped me strengthen my argument. Maybe I, I want to hear your ideas. So I think you're right to be skeptical about where it's heading, but at the same time, for me, it's it's very clear the urgency of some of these ecosystems that really need our support. It's just, you know, can we support it on a local level? I think it's still going to be the more powerful answer. I definitely agree that there, I feel like there's a collective callback to nature. Like it feels like, you know, there's a collective callback to village back to, because, you know, technology, although it's obviously incredible in so many ways, I really see the internet as shared consciousness, like we're exposed to different ways of thinking and being. And that's great. You know, things like social media, though, monetize attention. And so they amplify division and they because they want you on there. And so again, it's like this exploitation, much like glyphosate to get the most out of that. It's the same thing to get the most out of us. And so there's a beautiful part of it. And I think of the anthropologist Wade Davis, who says that like every culture sees other cultures as a failure to be them. You know, there's, I think he says something like 7,000 different cultures around the world and they're all the answer to the question, what does it mean to be human? And they're all right. And he said, like we see in the Western world that technology is the ultimate form of human achievement. But if you go to another culture, they say we couldn't be further from the earth. I kind of agree with that. You know, I, I agree with that. Social media, I lived in a world where phones didn't exist and computers didn't exist. You know, I'm 43. So I had a childhood that didn't have smartphones. And I'm so grateful for that because I learned about, I had boredom, I had creativity, I went and played and lots of adventures in the neighborhood with friends getting up to trouble, you know, and 
I think like there seems to be a yearning to rehumanize ourselves, you know, to find balance with technology. But in some ways, I feel like we all need to detox. But that is also, and it, maybe this sounds a little esoteric, but it feels like there's this desire to return what's sacred to ourselves, like having a sacred, which means like going and hiking, putting our, as you said, putting our feet on the earth. Like, of course, that helps us. Like the fact that that changes people's blood levels is so cool. The idea that the sun doesn't harm us or it can because we've been so removed from nature. And so we need to, as you said, sort of like slowly re-expose ourselves. I didn't think about the little things I could do till I started to think about them. And, you know, when you return to nature, you realize that everything in your life must become sacred. Like you can't just have one thing, like your relationship to yourself. Well, if your relationship to yourself is sacred, then you can't step on an ant anymore, you know, not on purpose. And I uh, recently, because of uh, uh, Darren Olean, I interviewed him and he was telling me like, you could just buy a mason jar with a sprout growing lid and buy organic sprouts and start growing sprouts in your kitchen. And I was like, nah. So I looked it up. I started learning about it. I Sure enough, I bought the sprouting lid. I brought the organic broccoli sprout. And in five days, I had this massive sprout salad. And I got to tell you, it like every day I saw it and I felt this level of excitement. I felt like I was participating in my own nutrition. Like here I am. And I think broccoli sprouts are like one of the most nutrient dense vegetables. And I was just like, this is why didn't someone teach me this as a kid that I could do this, that I could like have five different mason jars every week for 25 cents a day, eat a really powerfully nutritionally dense salad that like, I'm curious your thoughts on that, because I know that you left LA, moved to a mountain, mountainous region. And I know you've, it sounds like you've experienced some of that too. And I, I've really felt that too. Like I've felt the desire to not live in a city as much anymore. And I think the other challenge to this is that sometimes I think what I, this is a limiting belief. So I'm just going to acknowledge that is that part of getting out of the system is that you almost have to buy your way out of it. You have to make enough money from the system to buy the farm or buy the land or buy the thing. But I'm also realizing that in saying that you can create a little farm in these mason jars, you know, you can, so yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on all that. Yeah. Those little things like that, that seem they're so small. It's such a great point because yeah, you can sprout, you can, you can make your own kombucha at home again for pennies on the dollar of what you pay at the store and it's fresher. And so when we eat something like that, you know, we're, we're actually eating those phytochemicals that we don't even know entirely what's happening in our film. There's a, there's a quick moment in the need to grow where on the farm he breaks open this romaine lettuce and there's this white milk that comes out of it. And it's some of the most anti-carcinogenic compound in the lettuce and it's gone in about 24 to 48 hours. You won't find it almost ever in lettuce that you buy at the store. And so that opportunity to engage with food really at its peak freshness, you know, you are doing yourself an incredible service by something so simple. And it reminds me of these studies that we have about people in hospitals when they receive flowers or when there's a plant in the room, 
really profound just to think that something so small is having a physiological change. So the color green is actually very powerful for people to see. And what's so fascinating is even when it was a picture of a natural setting, in some of these studies that they put in a, a hospital room, they saw better improvements in mood and faster recovery and things like that. Just seeing nature again, that's because you're coming home, you know, very, not just to be poetic about it. You literally are returning to who you are, who you evolved to be, which, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of evolution, it, it's just but a blink at the end that we've lived in these ways where we've been detached and we've been inside for most of the time. And so this this connection, I think, is really powerful. It reminds me of the, the concept of what some people call biophilia, which is sort of a, a desire to, to be back in nature, um, a desire to reconnect because you feel different. And that's what we're going for. Uh, for a long time in psychology, I think the, the notion of emotions was that it would interrupt analytical decision making, right? When your emotions are so high, you're going to disrupt your ability to, to make rational decisions, right? And I think just recently, I was at a, a meeting with this fellow from USC who uh, is, was studying brain science, and he was telling me about the discoveries at the base of the brain that it turned out we may have been thinking about it wrong, that actually the feeling part evolved first. And that feeling, that intuition was more critical to our survival instinct than the analytical decision-making calculating part. And the more that I sat with that and I thought about that, it was, you know, that makes sense because when you feel bad, that's actually good because you're, you've gotten a feedback, you know, we're supposed to have that, wait a minute, this doesn't work. This doesn't feel good. So Unfortunately, a lot of us are dealing with mental health issues. A lot of us are dealing with you know, the struggles from, from so much that's happening in the modern world. And it's feedback that our life, something needs to change, right? So when we feel that is like, wait a minute, just going on that walk, why do we long for a vacation in a beautiful scenic place? There's something that our soul is yearning for. Why, why do we want to go and stare in awe at the waterfall where we have this deep, this, this lack of awe exposure right now? I think. And we can find that in the natural world in really powerful ways. And the more that you practice it, the more that you find it in things that would have otherwise been mundane. And like you talked about respecting the life of an ant, you know, one of one of my favorite ways to meditate is just to go in and stare at some sort of living creature, whether it's a squirrel in my backyard or the, the ants moving around and, and really you know, looking into their world because it's not about a woo-woo thing. It's about respecting that they are part of this greater system, you know, and humans are but one part of this larger ecosystem. So this biophilia, you know, what acts can you do in the natural world that you change that feeling? Wow, my stress changed. You know, just being in a garden, just being outside, it changes you. And we have to, you know, rebuild our desire for that and not dismiss it because it may seem like, oh, it's just too small of a thing. But 
What else are we longing for? Why do we want the material? Why do we want all these status things? We're ultimately all desiring to feel good. And when, I, when I'm out there on the lake and looking at the gorgeous sunset, I've always thought, you know, if I was a multi-billionaire right now in this moment, this would still be the moment. This moment of beauty, this moment of awe would not be any better You know, if I'm really plugged into the present, whether I have $10 in the bank or $10 billion in the bank, that's here for us. We are rich. You know, we're all rich if we have those opportunities to connect to nature. And and it is it is the true value. And I think what's cool is that the more that we do that, it's it's a positive feedback loop because our stress levels can go down. And therefore we start wanting to be outside more. We start getting addicted to hiking or addicted to running. You know, and these are like the positive, you know, we build those neural pathways, we strengthen them. And then we go, wait a minute, that's what I want to keep sending those electrical signals down those paths instead of how disempowered I am. It's like, these are the steps that I can do. And so, you know, when you look at that sprouting, I think that that is the step that happens for someone that leads them to the next experience or, or reconnection to nature. And everywhere along the way, they're just getting better and better feedback that, wait a minute, that feels good to do. And that's... That's what we evolved alongside. And so it's really, it is returning to, to who we are. And you know, when we titled that one film, The Need to Grow, it was not just about growing food. We wanted it to have a few meanings. And one of the big ones was that you know, we need to grow spiritually. We need to grow as a society. And we need to look back on who we are as earthlings and being part of something bigger. And I think that that's what's so cool because, you know, a lot of the work that you do about relationships is like this so much comes down to communication. And when we disrupt communication within our bodies, that's when we get disease. The system has lost the ability to regulate itself because something is either lacking of a resource that it needs in the form of maybe an antioxidant, a vitamin, a mineral, or we have a pollutant that's disrupting it. Right. And so we're creating this disease in our body because there's a disruptor of communication in the way that it evolved on the ecosystem scale. There's a disruptor. There's something that has threw a cog into these these cycles. And it's the same thing with relationships. Like it's all about how do we keep that free flow of communication and uh, that's why, I mean, I, th- I think these are all part of the same conversation. You know, they're just different scales. It's like even on the microscopic level, it's that same analogy, that same metaphor. Yeah, those things need to communicate. And why are they imbalanced? They're not able to to regulate themselves because they're not, the flow of energy is not there. And so it's like, how do we get that flow going again? reconnecting with the natural world in every way, shape, and form in the way that we evolved. Again, it's not about, hey, just because it's natural, it doesn't mean go eat some poisonous berry because it exists in nature. You know, you see that a lot with scientific debates. They go, oh, you're just so, you know, appealing to the nature fallacy again. Like you want it all to be natural. There's a time and a place for these modern technologies, right? There's a time and a place for the these advanced solutions, whether it's in medicine 
whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in technology, sometimes the greater good is about using those advancements. Let's keep it at an even playing field of a decentralized landscape of options instead of just going to the one that you know we've been told is and happens to make someone a heck of a lot of money. There's a lot more to uh, our ancestors than we gave them credit for in terms of intelligence. And we want to believe that, you know, as we get, as we move forward, we're, oh, we're smarter. We're able to do this. Look how much more advanced. And it's like, wait a minute, we're sicker. You know, any other, any other metric, any other field in the world or industry, you would say that's a complete and total failure by every metric. So, so you would pivot. You would say, why would we keep doing the thing that is getting the worst results ever? The more we do it, we get worse results. So it's just a basic logic idea that maybe that's not the road to keep going down, whether it's with agriculture that is disrupting our, it's destroying our resilience and our diversity, or whether it's with human health, where we're doing things that we think are solutions, but are leading to lack of resilience, more disease, lack of biodiversity in our gut microbiome. So, you know, looking back and, and, and taking these modern uh, technologies in tandem with the ancient technologies, I think is that, is that is the healing regenerative future because we can use them together to actually speed up the regeneration. I feel like recently there's been such a war on nature. You know, there's been like this idea that viruses, all these, we need to sanitize everything. And again, it's this idea that nature is trying to kill us, not work with us. It's this, again, the dehumanization, the decoupling of self from other, from planet. But, you know, I think of that yearning that we might have for the car or the yearning we might have for whatever is really a yearning, as you said, for nature, for ourselves, for connection, for the sun, removing that intuitive feeling like, oh, I need broccoli because it has whatever I'm actually needing, or I'm craving red meat because it has whatever I actually need, which I remember being vegetarian for like six months and going to a taco party. And I brought cauliflower tacos, which are exceptional, but I brought them and I was sitting by a bowl of beef and I just found myself spooning (laughs) beef into my mouth, not like not even consciously. All of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I'm just like eating beef. And when I got my blood done, yeah, I needed vitamin A. I needed what was in there. And it just shows you when, you know, when we're eating processed foods, we're also denaturalizing our intuitive ability to know what we actually need to eat. It's a beautiful invitation back to nature that you're that you're inviting us to. And also your work is incredible. I'm I've just been very appreciative of your voice, as I said to you earlier, and your commitment to exploring the binaries. You know, one thing is you've never been like pro this, anti this. You're like, okay, there's this complexity that lives within the middle of this. Let's explore the complexity. And using language that creates binaries is not helpful because it doesn't allow us to see ourselves really in it because we're neither left or right or pro or anti. We might cling to those labels for certainty, but really we're all this nuance that lives in there. And I appreciate you, man, your commitment to all of this and taking the time to share with us your passion, your knowledge and the continued evolution. I'm so excited about your new one on biophotons and also the one on the gut and, and health. So where can people find more of you? Where they where can they follow you for your exploration? Because you also explore the science of what's going on currently, which I really appreciate in your stories. They're often funny 
too. So yeah, where can people find more of you? The platform that I run right now is called Earth Conscious Life. So earthconsciouslife.org and the film The Need to Grow at theneedtogrow.com. And as as we've gone down exploring, you know, the the detriment of of binary and labelism and identities attachment to ego. We arrived at this solution for helping people stay informed through our, our new company called Tip News. So tip.news is our attempt at creating a, 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 the most non-divisive news source that we possibly can, because most of us do want to stay informed to some degree, but we don't need to be fed the, the clickbait and, and you know more and more divisive narrative. So we, we launched that, which is another great way to find us. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I appreciate your approach to looking at the, you know, the spectrum of the human experience, because uh, again, with a metaphor of light, it's not one or the other. There is this beautiful spectrum. And I think the more that we avoid the the binary is, is going to be the radical solution that we actually need to, to evolve as, as a species. Beautiful. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate you. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.